Welcome to episode 189 of the Women of the Military podcast. This week my guest is Nicole Napreste. She served in the Air Force and she started looking into the military because her dad served in the Army and he recommended that she join the Air Force. She was going to join after her senior year but became pregnant and because of the rules around single parents had to wait a year after child's birth and adoption before she could join the military. In this episode, we talk about her rape and a lot of the negative impacts of women serving in the military around sexual harassment, assault, and rape. And so this is your warning that that topic comes up a number of times and it's a really sensitive issue. So I wanted to make sure to give people a warning on what this episode focuses on before we get started. And I'm really grateful that Nicole was willing to share her experience of being in the military and what challenges she faced while serving. So let's get started with this week's interview. Welcome to the show, Nicole. I'm so excited to have you here. Well, I am glad to be here. This is going to be exciting. Yeah, we met via LinkedIn and we're actually from the same hometown, which is like a small world. And I'm really excited to finally get to do this interview because we've talked about it a few times. And so I'm really glad that if our schedules lined up and we can make this happen. Yeah, this is, here we go. Away we go, right? Away we go. So let's start with why did you decide to join the military? Well, the biggest thing, so I I grew up military, but like we never moved, which is, so I'm, I guess I'm the anomaly of a military brat because my dad spent decades in the army and we never moved. And I think that was just mainly because my mom's like, we're not moving. <laughs> so we never moved. We, uh, you know, I lived in that same house in, in my hometown for 14 years. And then we didn't actually move until my parents got divorced. But it was like shortly after that, my dad says, you know, if you're going to join the military, join the Air Force. He said, they treat their people the best and they treat women the best. And I was like, okay. So that's what I did. Early my senior year, I encountered a recruiter, as we do at high schools, and, and talked to him. And then a few months later, I, I found out that I was not <laughs> exempt from the from whatever fate had in store for me. So, um, and I got I got pregnant, so I had to delay joining right after I graduated. I actually had four recruiters because there was the first one I talked to, and then he left. So I guess he PCS'd. And then I went and talked to the next one. And then I think he left. <laughs> and then I talked to another one. And um, it was finally, I went on DEP, the delayed entry program, like six months after I graduated. And then went in the military six months later. And did being a mom have any effect? Like, were there laws in place preventing moms from serving or had that changed already? Because I don't know the history exactly of when all those laws changed. So at the time, I had my son in 94. And at the time, California state law in adoption, you are still basically on the hook to being a parent for a year after the birth. And so since I was in the eyes of the Air Force, a single parent from 94 to 95, so let me amend that, go back a little bit and amend that. It was six months and a year <laughs> after I graduated that I went on debt. I guess I blanked out that year. <laughs> it's a long time ago. So yeah, so for a year I was considered a single parent. And then it was after that in like October of 95 that I was, that I went on debt. So even though you had given your son up for adoption, you were still considered a single parent because of the way the laws were written 
that's really interesting. And the fact that it like delayed your entry into the military for so long. It's just fascinating, like the way the laws were written and how they were discriminatory towards women and kind of, I don't know, you were determined to join. So you stuck it out or how did that all work? It it worked in my favor because as anyone who's ever been pregnant (laughs) um, and has a, you know, a healthy pregnancy with no complications or whatever, you know, there's some weight gain. And uh, yeah, I gained the equivalent of like a first grader. And so having that extra year allowed me to, well, run my butt off and and all the other parts off too. (laughs) So it basically allowed me to get into shape because the weight restrictions were more strict also. At the time that I joined, the Air Force had this rule that you had to be 10 pounds under allowed max you know, at my height, my weight max was 158 pounds. So to join, I had to weigh 148 pounds or less. And max pregnancy weight for me was 200 pounds. So I had a little ways to go. It's really interesting when you dive into the history of women in the military and things that I don't think people talk about because I think things like this only really come out in like conversations where you find out about people's experience and then you learn about different practices that were in place and how restrictive and I already know there's like a lot of information and frustration around the current weight standards and they're not even as restrictive as they were before. Yes. Yeah, I had that was one thing I I struggled with my whole military career. And I was in for 20 years. So I struggled from start to finish. I mean, I was, I'm not a thin woman. I am, I like to say, physically dense. So I have always weighed more than I look like I weigh. And from the get go, because again, to join, it had to be 10 pounds under max. And then when I, once I was in, they were still doing the BMI thing. And I have a skinny neck. So when you do the whole measure your neck, measure your waist, measure your hips, and you do that special math, which is based on BS. If you've ever looked up the history of BMI, a mathematician or someone, a psychologist, manipulated a formula to make it match his sample. There's no scientific basis for the BMI. But anyhow, that's a segue. So I always failed BMI because I had a skinny neck. Whereas, you know, there's those people who have like really huge necks and they were fine. And so I was always on, you know, I was always striving to be thinner, be thinner constantly. And even when they changed the fitness regulations in 2002, and now it's, you know, it's a um, iliac crest measurement aka the waist measurement. Well, by this point, I'd had another child. <laughs> so, <laughs> so now I have, you know, you know, two, two pregnancies have manipulated my body into a totally different shape. And in a lot of cases, you don't bounce back because you physically cannot. Like if you have pregnancy, things just stretch and don't always poop back. And that was the case. So I ended up having surgery. Let's not jump too far ahead. Let's talk about what your career field was and what basic training in tech school were like. Basic training was, you know, it was it was older people, you know, the older TI yelling at you. And and I look back now and I was probably I think I'm like, they were probably only like five, six, seven years older than me. But whatever. They just seem so much older because they're yelling at you. And 
it, it was it was an interesting experience. I didn't struggle in basic training. I didn't really deal with too many issues there. You know, my nickname was Knapsack. I guess that was the closest thing they could find to matching my last name. My tech school for aircraft maintenance slash avionics um, was at Biloxi. And I just remember it was hot and it was sticky. And because I was there all summer. So it was hurricane season. I was there from basically Memorial Day weekend. So, I mean, we're coming up on like today is the day I graduated basic training a few decades ago. And Memorial Weekend, we got to Biloxi, spent all summer at tech school. It was interesting. I mean, I, I didn't have a terrible time. You know, we went to Pensacola a couple times and, you know, I, I thought the dress code, the phases, I don't know if you were, you didn't come in enlisted, so you may not, yeah, you didn't have to deal with the phases. So at tech school, they had these things called phases. And like, if you were phase one, you always had, if you were out of your dorm, you had to be wearing uniform. And then like phase two, something similar, but I think you could go off base in your blues, but you still had to be in a uniform anytime you were outside the dorm. Phase three, you could wear civilian clothes here, there, and everywhere. I never got to phase four because that required having a higher score on the tests. <laughs> and and uh, to be honest, avionics was not my jam. <laughs> I struggled. <laughs> I did almost enlist and my career field was going to be avionics, which is funny because I remember you posted on LinkedIn about like how you were like greasy and dirty. And I switched from, I think, fuels to avionics because the lady who was helping me was like, I think this one you won't get as dirty. And so then you like posted about it and I was like, well, she was wrong. So, but I almost, that was the career field I was going to go in when I was looking at enlisting before I learned about ROTC. Yeah, you would have been. I mean, everyone, I've known a few people in fuels and there are higher incidences of cancer. And that's just based on my own personal people I know and anecdotes I've heard. Aircraft maintenance is interesting. Avionics is probably, depends on the airframe, whether it's dirty or not. But it was, I don't think it's ever not dirty. (laughs) I don't think you could avoid it completely when you're in maintenance. You just, you can't. Yeah, I don't think so either. So after you finished tech school, where did you go next? So my first duty station was at McCord. And that was that was great. I drove from California to, to Washington State. It was such a tremendous difference because, I mean, as you know, Central Valley, California is very brown. You know, we were at, at that time, we were probably in one of many droughts. And then I get to the Pacific Northwest and it's green and it's drizzly um, and it's cold because I got there in December. Living in the dorms was an experience. I mean, the best part about living in the dorms is you can just walk to the dining facility. That was truly the best part. And the post office. (laughs) You could walk to the post office. There, I mean, there was some definite negatives to McCord. I mean, it was definitely first duty station. You get your first experience with sexual harassment and innuendos. And in my case, um, while I was still living in the dorms, I was raped by a, I think he, I don't know if he was another service member. I feel like he was. Um, I don't think he was Air Force though. And it was, um, you know, I had gone to a tequila party. Parties are, um, 
you know, they're they're kind of a thing Friday and Saturday night in the dorms. It's it's like college, you know, it's it's a thing. You know, everyone is 19, 20, 21, 22. So that's that's what you do. And that's what I did. And uh, this guy had followed me back from uh, well, he walked me back supposedly. I just remember I was really, I was blacking out. Like I would have made it back to my dorm, but so he walked me back and, uh, I was too, way too intoxicated to say yes, no. I could almost tell you my name. I think, um, you know, and I, I remember parts of it. Like I, I was, I was just in and out and, and I remember the next day I had weekend duty. So I still had to like get up and go to work. And I remember waking up that morning um, or that Saturday morning and there was a post-it note on my mirror and this guy had left the note and it said, thanks for a really good time. And he signed his name and I was like, okay. And I remember like just breaking down crying because I was like, oh, that really happened. Okay. I'm not imagining things. (laughs) And mind you, I was so like, I was still hungover. You know, I mean, I was, I was probably still drunk when I went to work. And even when I got to work, after I'd had breakfast, I got to work and I was sick at work. And my boss is like, are you all right? And I'm like, "Mm." and he's like, just go home. We don't need you. And I'm like, (laughs) so I went home. Um, But I never told anyone this was 90. I want to say it was summer of 97. And I only say that because I was very excited to show the security forces person who got called to the party for a noise complaint, my ID and that I was 21. <laughs> I was like, no, really, it's okay if I'm drunk because I'm 21. So because, you know, underage drinking is a huge deal in the military. And that was when that guy was like, we were both stopped on the way back to my dorm. And that's when I showed them my ID. Um, so that's what I'm saying. It had to have been like 97. But anyhow, I never told anyone this is long before there was a Sark or Sharp or, you know, whatever. I know it's Sark in the Air Force, but whatever the other services call it, that it didn't exist. Um, so I didn't tell anyone. Who was I going to tell? You know, and even if I did tell someone, I had gone to a party. I had got drunk. And we all know anyone who's ever gone to a party, gotten drunk, and gotten raped knows exactly how that goes. Yes, it always goes the same. So, um, yeah, I didn't, and I, I don't know if it affected me. Like I, I, I couldn't tell you, well, I wouldn't have been like this if it hadn't happened. You know what I mean? So. So you kind of like stuffed it down and did you pretend like it didn't happen or what was your like mental state? Did you just not think about it because you couldn't do anything about it? Or did you feel like it was something that bothered you? I didn't. I don't know that I deliberately didn't think about it, but I'm sure whatever I did all those years ago had to do with the fact that, no, there was nothing I could do. It was already happened. It was in the past. I can't change that trajectory. So let's just move forward. You know, and that's that's kind of been me my whole life of like, well, whatever. And that's everything. Well, this happened. Okay, so move on, (laughs) you know, do this, do that kind of thing. Just keep going. So you just continued your career in the Air Force and just tried to move forward. Yeah, I was very excited. So from McCord, I was at McCord for six years. And after that, I went to Kadena. And it was while I was at Kadena that they introduced the SARC program or the SAPR program, I guess, with the SARC. But (laughs) 
It was kind of a joke to watch those training videos that we had to watch where they're obviously contrived and most of the people are really bad actors because that's not what they're getting paid to do. <laughs> you know, and it's like, it, it was just, I mean, for first efforts, okay, it was pretty good. But how teaching someone how to be a better victim doesn't prevent sexual assault. And that's what the Sapper program was doing and did for many, many years. I don't know what's doing now. Maybe there's been changes. But the whole time I was in, it was more about how to respond to a victim and how to deal with a, a victim or a survivor of sexual assault than getting the people who have committed sexual assault and raped people behind bars because it is a very strong good old boy club. Yeah, that's really true. I never really thought I knew that the training was like just a bit off, but I didn't like the way you put it into words. I was like, that's what the training was. It was like, this is how you help a victim. This is if you are a victim, this is how you report it. Like that was what the training was all about. It wasn't about anything about like how to get justice or I guess you could like say, well, if you and you learned about like the one report where you're like, it goes to your commander and the other report, I can't restricted. Unrestricted and restricted, yeah. But like, those are the things I remember from it. And that's, and I always walked away from it and was like, I don't feel like that was really helpful. And it wasn't because it was, it was all about like, not preventing it and not stopping it and not stopping the cause, but just trying to help the victim get support after instead of preventing the victims from happening. It was, it's, it's all, it's reactionary. It's not proactive. It didn't really start getting looked at until because that would have been like 2003 that it it came to be and it probably wasn't until 10 15 years later somewhere in that time frame that it really started getting looked at because that was when that ti got busted for assaulting all those trainees at basic training so it was the high profile. It took the high profile cases for them to go, well, maybe we should look at it a little bit, you know, and even then there weren't tremendous changes made because, and we even see this in the civilian community in general, it's, it, it, I mean, perfect example is that swimmer at, at Stanford or whatever, wherever he was, where, I mean, you know, these people will assault and, and rape others and it's all about, well, we don't want to destroy their future. Well, what about the person who was raped? And that's what it is. It's like, well, you don't want to destroy the future of this person who has violated this other person. And I think that things were starting to change, but not really. And then with Vanessa Guillen's death, I think that brought a lot of attention and focus on the problem. But and they got past the law. But I think that like now it's been a few years since she died and it's starting to like die down. Like it's not in the public's mind. It's not something like they made changes and they passed a the law and they're like, good job, we fixed it. And it's like, no, you didn't fix it. There's still a lot of problems and there's still cases being overturned and things like that happening. And people who are assaulting women over and over and over and not ever getting either caught or either getting convicted. They just there was just one in the news recently where he had he had assaulted a subordinate or something and they changed the charge to something that did not have a sexual assault 
a flavor. I don't know what, how to stem it, but it was like, because sexual assault charges are treated differently than like assault charges. So they changed his charge to one that wasn't sexual assault. He's still able to retire. I think he was like a major or something. So it's, you know, until they, until they take the, um, I, I think they just need to put it, I need, they need to put those, those particular kinds of court martial topics, they need to take them out of the military justice system. That's what they did with the Vanessa Yean law. And that's why they changed that. Okay. So that changed. So they changed it. And then to bypass it, they're like, well, we'll just won't put sexual and then it won't get out of the military chain of command. So it sounds like even though they made the law, they found a loophole to bypass around it, which is really sad. And I have to, I'm going to double check just to make sure before I post this interview, but I'm 99% sure that's what the Vanessa Guillen law is, that it took it out of the commanders and even out of the UCMJ and to the civilian side so that people could get justice. But then if you don't prosecute it as what it actually is, then people still don't get justice. Yes, yes. And I mean, because I was a, a victim advocate for seven years. So, I mean, these, these statistics during that time were something I was very much into. And I mean, when you look at, you know, how many restricted and unrestricted reports were filed, and then, of course, if they're unrestricted, then the, the justice system, to whatever extent, can pursue things. If they're restricted, it's just a report that's tucked into a drawer somewhere and, and nothing happens because the the victim is like, I don't want to be put through the circus. But if you looked at the unrestricted reports and they show like, you know, the, the breakdown where like they do like this, it looks like an old recall roster where it's like number reported and then this branch goes to it went to court and this one just went to NJP. And then, you know, those, by the time you get all the way down to it, like out of, say, 3,000 unrestricted reports filed, maybe two went to courts martial. And then they're like, oh, well, you know, we'll call it time served or whatever. Like, it's not even, what's the point? Yeah, that's something that I've heard. And even if you're lucky enough to get it to go to court martial, the way that the law was before Vanessa Guillen's law was passed is that the commander could just flip the case. And so, like, that makes it so that the number of cases you just showed, like how many cases never even made it to a court martial. And then the few that did and were convicted could easily be flipped by the commander. And so it's like, no wonder there was no justice and that there were predators, you know, knowing they could get away with it and having confidence because they were able to do it over and over again. Yeah. If you've ever seen, um, so 10 years ago, there was this documentary that came out and it was sensationalized, but they used real statistics and then like, oh my gosh, look at this, um, called The Invisible War. I don't know if you ever watched that. I've heard of it. I haven't watched it. Oh, the statistics are astounding. You can find it on various streaming um, services, but it's, I mean, that I, and I think that through making that is also where, you know, Sapper got the, the statistics for one in four women and one in six men are assaulted, which by that, it sounds like more women are assaulted. But if you think about how we are only 20%, so if we're 20%, so out of 100 people, 20 are women, five of them are getting assaulted. But if you look at the other, say, 80%, you know, one in six 
is getting assaulted. So that means out of 100 people, almost 20 people are getting assaulted during their career and sometimes multiple times. But yeah, it's not an issue, really. It's true. It's a big issue. So do you want to talk about this more or do you want to continue on with your career? A week and I mean, that was, that's just a snippet of the career. It did, it was kind of a, an underlying tone just because, you know, I was a um, victim advocate for the seven years. So after I left Kadena, I went to Dover and I spent, I, I finished out my career at Dover. I, again, I'm one of those anomalies where in 20 years I moved twice. Like I went from McCord to Kadena and then Kadena to Dover and that's it. Like any other moving was outside of that. And so I, I finished out my career there the whole time, you know, I was, although there was the whole service, you know, integrity first, service before self, excellence and all we do. I would say the last 10 years of my career, I was counting the days until I could be done because I was like, I'm kind of done, but I'm going to tough it out until 20 so that I could retire. My whole career, I always had a part-time job. Again, an anomaly. Most people do not have that opportunity. I had a part-time job from you know, when I was at McCord, I didn't have one in Kadena because, you know, I wasn't going to look work in the local, you know, downtown in, uh, in Okinawa. But yeah, the whole time I was at Dover, within six months of getting to Dover, I got a part-time job at the mall and, and worked at Victoria's Secret for nine years. I called it my estrogen balance because I worked with a bunch of dudes on the flight lines. So, you know, and it was, it was interesting. Was it more because you wanted to do it or is it because you needed the extra money to make ends meet? All of the above. I mean, you know, we, we never turned down more money. At Dover, I didn't need the extra income. At McCord, I did because I bought my first house as an E4 while still living in the dorms. But then, you know, when I got to Dover, I, I was able to, I got another house once I sold the house in Washington State, got the house at Dover. And, you know, once I got to Dover, I was already uh, an E5. And then about eight years later, I got promoted to E6. I did not promote quickly. <laughs> um, I did not promote quickly at all. So, but I, di I did joke because back in when I made staff, we called it the great staff giveaway because the year I made it, it was literally the highest percentage of people. Like they talk about the year, the year after that and the year after that, like the great, no, the year I made it was literally the highest percentage um, <laughs> people who made E5. So I spent a long time because I feel like I made staff too soon. I spent a long time as staff just trying to learn how to be an NCO. And then once I got to E6 tech sergeant, that was fun. That, I feel like tech is like the sweet spot. But it's interesting because the going back to, I had mentioned that when I was at McCord, of course, you know, I got my first exposure to sexual harassment and that sort of thing and the innuendo and the double entendre. And that continued. That never left. You know, anyone, I would say every, almost every female service member that I know that I've worked with, you know, they understand that. Um, or have experienced that feeling of being fresh meat at their new base, at least for the first week or so until everyone figures out where they fall in the chain of things like, oh, are you married? Or are you single? Are you, you know, this? Are you that? And I feel like as a higher ranking person, I was like, okay, I'm not as racked and stacked as <laughs> everyone else is. But I saw it with the the new young airmen that came in. I would hear how some of the guys talked about it. And I'm like, y'all need to quit. 
So, and they would, I mean, I was also the victim advocate during that time frame. So that also kind of added a layer of like, oh, oh, don't say that because, you know, the sapper lady's here. But it never went away. I mean, old civilians who'd been prior military and were now civilians and were just waiting until they could retire, they would make some comments and you're like, just go away. <laughs> you know, there was one, one civilian, he was special and not in a good way. He, he would constantly stare at my chest. Like it would, it would be to the point where I would ask my expediter, am I taking turnover from this person? And if they said yes, I would put my backpack on my front and just then go get turnover. <laughs> but he was, yeah. And, and everyone knew it. But his incidences were so subtle and so nuanced and so nobody did anything. So that made it very frustrating. But, you know, Dover, Dover has holds a special place because that's where I actually discovered there are career fields that aren't aircraft maintenance. Like I was in the process improvement office and I loved it. I did not love aircraft maintenance. I was not was not great at it. I was adequate. And anyone who's been in the military, I feel like we're always pushed to be more than adequate. And I was just adequate. Like, and even that was questionable on some jobs because aircraft maintenance was not an aptitude I had, but I stuck with it because I didn't want to transfer to something I would hate more. So (laughs) like fuels. (laughs) Like fuels. Yep. (laughs) Well, and it's sometimes hard to get out of career fields, especially like maintenance, where sometimes it's like lower staff because of like the ops tempo and the demand. And so I know I've interviewed people who are in maintenance who didn't want to be in maintenance and they wouldn't let them leave. Yeah. Yeah. We were almost always chronic critical, as they called it. And then the flip side would be like when we weren't chronic critical, the only things that were available were other chronic critical career fields that were more demanding or strenuous than aircraft maintenance, which was usually like fuels or sheet metal. So it was really just more aircraft maintenance. Right. Just a different name, (laughs) but still aircraft maintenance. Yeah. Yeah. Because maintainers, like it's a hard career field. And especially for women, I've heard that it's because it's just a tough career field to be in. And And I think the military is hard in general. And like I did deal with like sexual harassment and people saying stuff like the double entendres and all that stuff. And I was married the whole time I was in the military, but I still it was something that I just ignored because at the time in the military, that was the advice that you were given. Just ignore it. And I think that also had to deal with part of why the assault and rape went on for so long is like, just ignore it. And there's a lot of negativity towards that. Well, you said you were counting down to 20. So when you got close to 20 and you were like ready to transition, what did you do to prepare for the next stage of life? Well, I literally started counting down 36 months out. You know, at at the 10 year mark, I was just like, all right, I got 10 years left. But when I had three years left, it was literally 36, 35, 34. Um, And you don't know until you're out what you didn't know. Now, for me, like, looking back at it now, I'm like, okay, I do wish I had, like, been more aggressive than been more aggressive with paying down debt. That was really the only thing that finances is what caused me stress when I did get out. I didn't move. I still had my house. Um, I knew because I was retiring that I would have an income. 
And I didn't even, you know, they talk about like when you're retiring, you don't know when you're going to get your like first retirement check. That was one thing I actually didn't stress. I don't know. I just, in many cases, I'm very optimistic. And so I thought, all right, well, you know, I'll retire on this day. And, you know, I'll get my, my paycheck shortly after that. Somehow it's going to work out. And it did because I retired, you know, April, whatever, Friday, the last Friday in April. And my retirement paycheck hit that Monday. So there was no lulls. I guess it helped that I didn't have any debts owed to the military or to finance or anything. Um, and I didn't have a whole, like, it's just me. So there wasn't like deers and all this other stuff to have to deal with. The other thing that I was glad I did, I I had always, I've always been someone who always went to the doctor at the slightest little, anything going wrong, I'll go to the doctor. Um, and that worked in my favor because... All those aches and pains I had, I was able to submit those to the VA for my disability claim. And I always tell people, I'm like, when you submit for disability, submit everything. Let them tell you no, but submit for everything. Hangnails, just submit for everything. Because like I submitted for 17 things and they'll give you a breakdown. They will, you know, lay forth your claim for each one and give you a delineation. It might be zero, but it'll show that you claimed it. And so if things happen later, you can go, well, this has gotten worse. So I didn't stress too much about like moving because I didn't move. I still had the part-time job, um, but it, it was no longer, no, it was no longer Victoria's Secret. It was now White House Black Market. <laughs> so um, <laughs> move from undies to clothes. But what really hurt was when you go from... And, and people who like don't retire and just separate, they would see this too, where it's like you have this paycheck and then it's drastically less. So in my case, I went from like $4,400 a month to 1637 and my mortgage payment was 1100 <laughs> So So that was a little stressful. And I, I again, I still had the part-time job, so that added to it, but my car broke every other month for the first six months that I was retired. And the first thing that broke was the transmission. So that was, um, that was like three grand right off the bat. Um, I went to tap twice to see if there was anything different the second time. And there really wasn't the tap I attended at Dover each time. It was five days, Monday through Friday, three days of it had to do with a tire what to wear to job interviews, what to wear in the corporate environment. And I'm like, I work at White House Black Market. This is not pertinent to me. Like I help women buy clothes on the regular. The things that it should have covered, resumes, for example. No, that that was definitely deficient. It, they went so far as to say to bring in a resume or they would say, you know, bring in a job description and highlight the keywords. So it was not, now mind you, that was 2014 and 2015. So let's hope in the past seven, eight years, things have changed. I'm, I'm, I'm knocking on wood here. <laughs> I went to TAP in 2013, so I can't, mine was the same experience. It was all from like interviews and getting an interview, but it wasn't but which was weirdly not focused around getting your resume ready for an interview, which is kind of what you think you would need. The only thing that the person gave advice on was uh, having a LinkedIn profile. And he didn't really explain like how to utilize it. I didn't learn that till years later to use it like 
to connect with people and build your network. But he did say to get on LinkedIn, which I think was good advice. I just wish he would have known like all the other advantages. And I know LinkedIn has changed a lot in the last 10 years, but yeah. Well, and from what I've seen, like, I guess Skillbridge has been around since 2014. I didn't hear about it. I didn't hear about it in either instance of TAP. So it might have existed and it might have been present on one or two military installations, but it was definitely not, it definitely didn't have the presence that it does now on LinkedIn anyway. You know, and I, I do think that is one of the more useful pieces of information you know, that we can tell service members of like, get on LinkedIn, you know, because I feel like when service members get on LinkedIn, so long as they like throw up the bat signal somehow, some way and be like, I'm transitioning military, one of us is going to see it. There are enough military veterans on there that, you know, we will tag six others <laughs> and and get them connected with, you know, Vetlana and Veterati and ACP and 50 Strong and Hiring Heroes or Hire Heroes and, and all those other organizations. So that is definitely one of the most useful pieces to get on LinkedIn and do it early. Yeah, that's what I told my husband. I was like, you need to have your, like your LinkedIn profile and like start connecting with people. And like, I know you're not transitioning yet. We still have four more years. Oh, see, that's perfect time. It's like, honey, we need prep now. Trust me. <laughs> and he's starting to make connections and uh, figure out what he wants to do next. But it, that's what I told him. I was like, it was five years out. We have to start planning for the future. I know it seems crazy, but you... And you're going to SoCal, right? Or you're there? That's where we're going, yep. Yeah, so, so you're going to be right in the thick of, like, SoCal has a strong military presence because of Pendleton. So there's going to be things, events, you know, like the SoCal equivalent of Atlanta. Yeah, it's a good place to be. and Except for the prices, of course. Oh, yeah, that's, that's true. <laughs> It's good and it's bad. You know, they say pack extra layers, pack extra dollars. (laughs) Yeah. Is there anything else from your career that you want to talk about that we didn't get a chance to cover? I, I feel like with aircraft maintenance, I think the best thing someone can do in addition to if they enjoy aircraft maintenance, like I was not that person, but (laughs) if they enjoy it, you know, get as many certifications as you can that that is like get your A and P and you know there's also like there's so many different things that we do in training like there's the has hazardous hazmat um, handlers um, that sort of thing um, there's so many opportunities for getting that extra training and then like you know there's if you're if you're able to be the person who's like the safety guy in the office. You know, you make a lot of connections that way and you get to know civilian organizations because you have to deal with like the state of whatever state you're in, you know, like state of Delaware or state of Indiana. You have to deal with those people. So you it it broadens what you learn. I think that's great advice, especially because there's a civilian equivalence for almost every job in the military. And a lot of times you can do the job in the military, but then when you get out, even though you have the training, you don't have the certification. And so getting that certification and being ready for the transition, especially if it's something that you enjoy and want to continue doing. And if it's not, 
maybe trying to get a degree or some sort of training in a career field that you are interested in. Oh, absolutely. I took like I started my college career the year I graduated high school. And then I think I I finished my associates when I was at Kadena. And then I didn't finish my bachelor's until three years after I retired. So just take classes. Even if it's one at a time or one a year or whatever, just take a class because it serves for two reasons. And I recommend in person just because you get to meet people. Now, if you're just trying to obtain the degree, well, then just do the ones that check the boxes to get you the degree, you know, and then attend classes that you want to because they're fun. (laughs) But get all that extra education. Yeah, I'm planning to use my GI Bill in LA and my husband, I was I was looking at different colleges and he's like, you should try to go here because you could meet people and it could change your future on like getting a job in the career field that you're looking into. And I was like, that's a good point. I should not just go to the closest college, but the one that has the best impact for your future. Yeah. And also look at the ones that might have yellow ribbon. Yes, I am looking at that. <laughs> that is an important part of a school search. So my last question is, what advice would you give to a young lady who's considering joining the military? So I did think on this because I know you asked this question. And so I was like, it also made me think like, would I do it over again? And for that, I don't know. Just because of like the the pros don't outweigh the cons, they kind of balance. Like they're not better than, they're not more than, they're just kind of like, mm, okay. My biggest thing is, you know, kind of keep focused on going with a goal, whether it's you want to, you know, if you're going in enlisted, if it's because you want to go to school or whatever, then, you know, go in with that and focus on that. Focus on learning the most you can about your career field, even if you're you're not a fan of it. And not to the extent of like you're chasing awards, because sometimes that could be that is the perception, but just learn it because it will help you. At the same time, get involved in other things that aren't just your job so that you are interacting with people who aren't just in aircraft maintenance, <laughs> so to speak. And as much as possible, avoid the drama. Um, As a woman, you are not going to avoid the harassment. I mean, unless harassment somehow magically gets eradicated sometime in the next year, it's always going to be there. And it's always going to bring about a bit of drama. And there's always going to be someone who's going to talk crap about you and talk crap about your reputation. And as long as you stay true to yourself and just keep like Dory says, just keep on swimming, (laughs) just keep on swimming and and focus on that goal and push through to that goal. Because the end point isn't the end of the military service. The end point is the end of your life. So how does your do in the do things in the service that you can talk favorably about, you know, that will benefit you the rest of your life. I almost cut you off. And I love that I didn't cut off that last little bit because I think when I was in, I kind of was like the end point is me getting out of the military. And then years later, now I have, you know, I can look back and realize that the military was just a piece of my life and part of my story. And it gave me opportunities and it challenged me in different ways. But it wasn't like when I was in, I wish I would have thought about it in that way of like, it's just a stepping stone for the rest of my life. And it's not the end all be all life keeps going. 
life even gets better after you leave. And so I think that's really good advice. Thank you. Because we talked about military sexual trauma, I wanted to provide some resources that can help you or if you know someone who's struggling that you can give to them. The first is the Veterans Crisis Line. If you want to talk to someone, you can dial 1-800-273-8255 and then press 1. You can also text 838-255. And I'll also link to their website because there's a chat function, so you can go there as well. There's also a new app created by the Department of Veteran Affairs called Beyond MST. It is a free, secure, trauma-sensitive mobile app that was created specifically to support the health and well-being of survivors of sexual assault or harassment during military service. The app has over 30 specialized tools and other features to help those who use it cope with challenges, manage symptoms, improve their quality of life, and find hope. And the last resource I want to provide is one I've used myself, Colon Veterans Network. They offer free counseling for post-9-11 veterans for anything from PTSD, MST, or just needing someone to talk to. So you can look and see at cvn.org if they have a Colon Veteran Network in your state, and you can get some help that way too. I'll link to all these resources in the show notes, and I hope you have a great week. Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode. If this is your first time listening to Women of the Military podcast, I encourage you to go back and listen to some of the other episodes on the podcast. There are so many episodes and stories of women who've served in the military who can inspire you at whatever stage of the journey you're in, joining, serving, leaving the military, or just learning about the women who have served in the military. If you want to support Women of the Military podcast, you can go to patreon.com slash women of the military. And if you enjoyed Women of the Military podcast, please leave a review on your favorite podcast app to help the podcast grow and reach more women who are considering military service.